Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. George Carl joins us on Sports Byline, former NBA player and coach, and he's one of nine NBA coaches to have won a 1,000 games. His NBA coaching journey has been a very interesting one. He played his college ball for Dean Smith at North Carolina and then played five years in the ABA and the NBA with the San Antonio Spurs, and his head coaching Resume includes Cleveland, Golden State, Seattle, Milwaukee, Denver, and Sacramento. And George, I've known for a good long period of time, and he knows how to coach, and he certainly knows how to speak his mind. And when it comes to speaking his mind, he certainly did do that with his new book called Furious George, My 40 Years Surviving NBA Divas, Clueless GMs, and Poor Shot Selection. And George, we've known each other for a long time, and I was not surprised to see you write a book or even the title, but tell me why you decided to write a kind of take-no-prisoners book. Well, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't think I went into that much detail. The excerpts are the what, what you all have been reading. And the book itself, I think, is a positive journey through my career. And I do go off on, on talking about the game and, and the game from what, what I felt, where I feel. I think too many times when you get a coach on TV, he's filtering about about seventy-five percent of what he's saying, because he's got to protect his team. He's got to he's got to prepare for the next game. He's got to rally the troops. And but in the same sense, uh, I think filtering sometimes the truth is not the best thing. And I wrote this book just to show my frustration. Of the game has been great. I, I've had some great runs and won some. Had a lot of fun in the game of basketball, winning some games. And the, and the friendships are unbelievable. And the, and the, But there are things about the game that drives coaches crazy. You know, it's frustrating, I know, because since I've known you for a long time, right after you got let go uh, with the Golden State Warriors, I remember the dinner that we had, and I could see it in your face. I could hear it in your voice. Tell me a little bit about how your coaching philosophy and outlook on basketball was developed. Well, I think a lot of it started, of course, in North Carolina with Dean Smith. Uh, I played in the ABA days, and I liked the ABA game a little bit more. Uh, the, the speed of the game, the three-point shooting, the 
kind of the entertainment factor, the red, white, and blue ball, and, and mascots and stuff like that was more ABAs and then maybe MBAs. Um, you know, Bob Bass, Doug Moe, Larry Brown, Don, Don Nelson, Del Harris. Those are the guys that probably touched me as much as anybody. And Rick Majerus on the, on the college side, along with Dean Smith and Bill Guthridge and Roy Williams. So, you know, I'm a basketball guy. I love the game. My, my family's a basketball family. My, my daughter's married to a high school girls coach in Olympia, Washington. And my son is, of course, coaching the D-League team in L.A. at the L.A. Defenders. George, when you uh, take a look at the game, was the point that it kind of changed a little bit is when the big money really came into it? Well, I think it's a combination of maybe the TV money, the big money, and uh, the evolution of the game with the three-point shot. I think those two are probably the dynamic changes where all of a sudden, you know, the NBA was having trouble beginning on TV, and now they're on TV every night. Uh, and 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 then the other dynamic I think would be on my top top of the list would be the, the three point shot. You know, early in the NBA days and when they merged, no one shot it. Now everybody is shooting it, and people think we're probably shooting it too much right now. The other thing I find interesting is that I think there became a time, maybe when the money started coming into it, George. That it went from being, uh, you know, basketball and from a technical standpoint to being more entertainment. Am I correct in that observation? Well, you know, entertainment business, you know, all of a sudden everything is based upon how we're going to make money. Uh, you know, the early days of the NBA, I think owners owned it for a community service. Now owners own it because it's a big business. It's a, it's a billion-dollar business. And so that that just that change where, you know, sometimes my owner early in the eighties and nineties, I wouldn't even see him. I'd see him maybe twice a year. And now I think owners are so are much more involved. They're much more aware of the bottom line, both on the court, winning and losing games, and also in the profit sheet with the who makes money and what makes money. How can you approach a player today? Because I know uh, in the New York Magazine story, you said there were too too many times with Milo uh, when what he was going and had going on off the court was more important than what he was happening on the court as well. And you've been very candid about players. Uh, are they approachable? Are they coachable today? Yeah, I, I've never felt any player is unapproachable. I mean, players, it's the connection that, that coaches got. You know, and coaches probably more more that's his concern and it's probably his project more than a player. Uh, but a connection where players listen, players want to be a good team mate and, and play in the team concept and understand that the better we play, the more it is in for it than, than for you than when, when we don't play it with we. I know when you were in Denver, you didn't hold any punches when it came to uh, Anthony's Denver teammates either, calling Kenyon Martin and J.R. Smith AAU babies and the spoiled brats you see in junior golf and junior tennis. I happen to agree with that comment there, but is anything going to change? And if you call them out, is that going to help or change anything? I'm not calling them out as much as I'm making a discussion opened up to, to talk about where the game is. I think if the state of the game... Is being it's being changed. It should be conversed. All the good things 
but also you got to talk sometimes about the bad things that, that maybe money's bringing to the game of basketball. Let's go back to Cleveland because that's where you got your first uh, head coaching opportunity in Cleveland, and you did something with them. You you got them turned around. You took them to the playoffs, and you had things going in the right direction. What happened there? Uh, I think I was a young coach trying to find a more secure position. I was offered. I was in, I was asked to come down and be interviewed for my hometown school, University of Pittsburgh, and. Uh, and they didn't like it, and they were upset by it, but they still gave me permission to go. And I think it was, about, it was more off-the-course stuff, plus the team wasn't having success on the court. Uh, but it's probably ambition done in a way more than anything. One of the things that is always important uh, when it comes to a head coach is the general manager he happens to work for. I know with Bill Walsh, it was important for him when he took over the 49ers that he had a GM that he could work with. And certainly in the title of your book, you talk about such things like the clueless GMs. Tell me about that relationship between coach and GM, how it works and when it doesn't work. I think it's the most important relationship in your organization. And I think too, too many times it's not, it doesn't have a great relationship. But I look at Pop and R.C. Boucher, and I look at Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra, and, and you know, and, and I think and David Griffin has done a good job, I think, in, in Cleveland. But the game is changing. The influence of the game is probably more now in the front office than ever before. And the coach just gets to the gym. And hopefully some say and, and, and some trades and situations. But the game has changed so fast in the evolution of the money and the contracts. Sometimes I think it might be growing too fast. And, and what about the game itself, the way it is played, the officiating? Because I know you have some very strong statements in this book about the, uh, the referees. Well, every coach in America is not complaining about the referees. I mean, no one is happy when you play 82 games and you get this guy roughly in 20 of your games and your record's 4 and 16 in those 20. You're upset. You're worried. You're nervous. You're paranoid. Uh, but in the same sense, I think all NBA coaches or anybody that's ever been in the NBA knows that the best referees in the world are NBA officials. But that doesn't mean we're going to get along. It's not going it, it, it doesn't mean that we're not going to get angry because your calls determine the outcome of the game. Is it harder to referee the game than it was, say, even five or ten years ago because of the speed and the size of the players? I think so. I think, I think the, one, the one argument, people say they want to change some rules. The court might be too small. I don't know if you made it wider. I wouldn't want to make it longer. But I don't know if you gave the court more space to play. It might might help the game because the athletes, the size, the speed, the quickness of these guys, it's, the more space you give them, the more flamboyant they're going to be. we got about a minute before we have to break here. But when you take a look at your visit and your time with the Golden State Warriors, that had got to be frustrating because you were turning that team around and then all of a sudden you had three of your top four scorers taken away from you and you lost another one, Chris Mullen, as he had uh, alcoholic rehab. Tell me a little bit about what was so tough about dealing with that situation. Well, I think you, you, you phrased it pretty well. You know, after the first year, you know, we were hoping to build on that and, and progress in a good way. It didn't get off to a good start. And uh, we made the big Samson trade. And uh, the trade didn't work. I think Purvis, Larry Smith, and Chris Mullen all missed a lot of that year. So you were basically trading 
you know, three good players to get one that didn't pan out as well as you wanted. Plus you missed. So you're probably playing in the middle of that year. You're probably playing with your fifth or sixth man as your best player. George Carl is with us on Sports Byline. I want you to check out his book. It's an excellent read. It'll give you great insights into basketball. It's called Furious George, My 40 Years Surviving NBA Divas, Clueless GMs, and Poor Shot Selection. We'll talk about his years up in Seattle when he went to the NBA Finals as we continue on Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. George Carl has joined us here on Sports Byline USA. I've known George for a very long time. I've sat, I've talked basketball with him from time to time, and I love the book that he has out. I'm recommending it. It's called Furious George, My 40 Years Surviving NBA Divas, Clueless GMs, and Poor Shot Selection. When you got to Seattle, what type of team did you find up there? Um, basically a very athletic team, maybe the most athletic team I've ever co- coached up to that point in the, in the game with Sean and Nate and Gary and uh, Derek McKee, a lot of length, a lot of athleticism. And basically we're probably as good at defensive players and they were offensive players. So, you know, it, it was a team when I got there, uh, Bob Poffenberg was my assistant coach, uh, just a great defensive guy and, you know, he convinced me to be aggressive and start double-teaming a lot, and we played that way for all seven years I was in Seattle. Yeah, and you took them to the playoffs all seven of those years. It looked like to me as I watched your teams up there that the chemistry was pretty good as well. And, of course, when you say chemistry, that's kind of a nebulous word. Did you have the right uh, chemistry up there? Yeah. Uh, most of the years up there, you know, we, we had a, you know, the first team we had could score points. We had some jump shooters like Eddie Johnson and Rick, Ricky Pierce on our team. And, you know, we had two studs in Gary Payton and Sean Kemp and, you know, and Michael Cage was a good rebounder. We had a good team and Nate McMillan was off the bench, was a, a great bench player, a great point guard for me. Uh, and then every year we tinkered a little bit, you know, we tinkered and, one year we got, you know, Kendall Gill, and we, we didn't like that. We got Hershey Hawkins, and we traded Derek McKee for Detlef Shrimp. We made some smart moves along the way. Got, I traded Benoit Benjamin for Sam Perkins. Uh, and I, all those moves really helped us catapult ourselves into being, in my second year in, in Seattle, we would go to, to the Western Conference Finals. You certainly did reach your uh, peak in Seattle in 95-96, the Supersonics. You led them to 64 wins, a Pacific Division title, and their first NBA Finals appearance since 1979. But you end up losing to the Chicago Bulls in six games. Take me through that series for just a moment, George. Uh, the difficult time was, uh, 
you know, you know, trying to get the matchups where you wanted them. And, you know, initially we, we didn't want it. We, we, we didn't put Gary Payton on, uh, on Michael from the beginning. We thought we were saving for the fourth quarter. He had a little bit of a, a muscle pull in his lower leg. Uh, that didn't work out because when we put, when we finally put Gary on him, it worked out a lot better. And that, that's when we won two in a row. And, uh, and won game five and the one game five, game four and game five in, uh, in Seattle. But it was, a, it was a defensive series. It was more, you know, we talk about all the great offensive skills of Michael and Scotty and Sean Kemp and the Seattle team I had. But that ended up to be in a very, very much a defensive series. Two really good defensive teams battling it out. What was the challenge, and how did you approach the challenge of trying to contain Michael Jordan? Oh, you know, you had you know the basic rules that you didn't want him on the free throw line. You wanted to try to play him physically when he didn't have the ball and zone him up when he did have the ball. Make him see a crowd. Don't let him. Don't let him have a lot of space. Uh, and then try to keep him off the free throw line when he went to the basket. And, you know, he made some threes then, but he didn't shoot the three that much that, that season. Uh, I, I want to ask about how it ended in Seattle, because Wally Walker was my broadcasting partner for a while uh, for Pac-12, Pac-10 uh, basketball. And, and I, when he took the job up in Seattle, I didn't think it was the right job for him. And I'm not going to go into details as to why, but knowing you as I do and your personality and your intensity for the game, and knowing him as I did, I didn't think it was a good marriage, and obviously that uh, proved to be correct. What was the breakdown there? Oh, I think the breakdown was I was mad they got rid of Bob Whitson and Mark Workington. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more I was mad they took my guys away and and they gave the responsibility to a guy that never had the job, and I didn't know very well. And... Uh, and I think it's probably my youthful ego and attitude that probably, you know, if, if Wally would have taken that job when I was 55, I think we probably would have gotten along a lot better. <laughs> I'm not surprised to hear you say that. You moved on and became the head coach with the Milwaukee Bucks, and you got a great contract there, and you really did some uh, good things up there as well because they had not made the playoffs in seven seasons and you help rebuild a struggling organization. And I'm just wondering, what does it take to rebuild a team that either doesn't believe that they can make the playoffs or doesn't have the talent or a combination of both? Well, we had some good young players in Rayon and, and Glenn Robinson, and uh, and we would get, they would make a trade the next year and get Sam Cassell, which I thought was a great pickup. Uh, I think the thing that makes teams work from a coaching standpoint is a good point guard. A guy that understands what you're trying to do and kind of leads it in his personality without, without, without offending anybody. Uh, I thought in in Milwaukee, you know, we got to the conference finals, and we had, we played uh, the one year we played Indiana really well in the first round. I thought we should beat them in a five game series, but the the one year when we got to the conference finals, it was probably as that team probably had the least amount of talent that I, I think ever got to a conference final. And we were very close to winning it. You know, we, we missed a jump shot in game five. That if the big dog makes the jump shot, we probably win that series in six. Yeah. You take a look. You had Glenn Robinson. You had Ray Allen. You had Sam Cassell. 
and I've liked all three of those players. What was the chemistry for them? What made them work so well together? Well, what's unique about it is you go from Seattle, which is your defensive-minded team, and then you go to Milwaukee, and, uh, you know, it's an offensive team. They can score. They can score points. We had Tim Thomas off the bench. I think we had one month, one month in, uh, in, in, in my time in, in, in Denver where we had four guys score 40 points in the same month, four different guys. And that's how, that's how powerful our offense was. And so I had to change around maybe from being the defensive minded coach to the offensive end of the court. And I can't deny it, Milwaukee might have been the most excited city I've been in when we got to the Eastern Conference Final. That city was really into that series, I think, in 2001. 2005 was a hallmark year on, uh, on the personal front because uh, the Nuggets announced that you had prostate cancer, and then later on, of course, your son Cody playing as a starting point guard for Boise State um, and has played in the NBA and other leagues. He is uh, told that he has thyroid cancer as well. Tell me a little bit about how you reacted to hearing that uh, you had cancer. Cancer is difficult. You know, it's a word that you know. I think you, if you don't study it and don't know about it, it, it means someone might die. And you know, I can't deny. Ever since I've had two cancers, you know, you know, dying is on the plate a little bit more when when you, either your body continues to produce some cancer cells. But from the standpoint of family, I thought Kobe and I's journey into the world of living with with a cancer situation and, and getting it treated and moving on. Fortunately, prostate and thyroid are, are basically they take them out and, and you, you can live well without them. Uh, so both of them are, are, are very, very livable. But in the same sense, when you get told you have cancer, you're nervous, you're scared, especially for your son. And I can't deny a few times I was screaming at God out in my backyard. Uh, but in the same sense, I think as for a lot of cancer patients, going through the journey, fighting and persevering and becoming and, and getting up and up when you get knocked down when you have cancer, and then the recovery, once you go through that, I think so many things, and I know Kobe and I would, would agree with this, you get stronger, you get better, you get smarter because of cancer. And yeah. I think that's uh, the good thing about the journey that I went through. And I think you have a greater appreciation for smaller things. Am I correct about that, George? No question. I mean, I I gave up too many good things in life to try to win a basketball game. And uh, I've learned to keep my life a little more balanced. I still think that winning a game is pretty exciting to do. And, a great challenge to be a coach in the NBA, but I think I, 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 I need to, I need to give more time to my family, give more time to me. And I think I learned to do that the last four or five years of coaching. One thing I've always asked as highly skilled athletes, when they've gone through things like you just talked about is the discipline that goes along with being an athlete or being a coach, because I think that discipline in their life, uh, doing what they do uh, makes them a little bit tougher in things. Did you find that that discipline of being a, a basketball player at the pro level and a coach at the pro level helped you deal with some of the challenges in dealing with this? I don't think there's any question that the dedication and discipline and and just the focus, uh, the focus of knowing you can do things and believing that you know if you stay in it, it'll get better. 
no, uh, I think basketball is a, still a good teacher of life. I still think it's a good teacher of, of, of character and substance. And I mean, we uh, we all have the great stories that come out of sports, and I still think basketball is is, is a prime time teacher of life. You know, it's interesting when I watched your uh, Nuggets team in two thousand four, two thousand five, and that uh, start thirty two and eight. I just thought they were going to be almost unbeatable. Tell me about that string of games, uh, the first forty games of that season. That was amazing. I think we actually had a pretty good schedule, but you know, I think I, I inherited a team that was struggling from a standpoint of making it work. And when I got here, I got a tremendous commitment from them. Within and then the style, and of course, enthusiasm comes when you win games. And when we started winning, we got we got confident, confident, and we kept winning, especially on our home court. And I never thought 32 and 8 would ever happen, but it was one of my best stretches. And what's funny is we played San Antonio in the first round, and we beat him the first day. Andre Miller, I remember, had a great game for us, and we beat him. And uh, and they came back and beat us four straight after that. But it was it was a great run. Was your best year coaching 2013 when you got the NBA Coach of the Year award? You know, Ron, I'll say that was the most fun I had in coaching. And uh, I think it was – I think we squeezed the juice out of that one pretty good. I mean, <laughs> we got the most out of that team. Uh, and I think uh, most teams that I've coached. And it was a joy what – what happened, it doesn't happen all the time is, you know, success doesn't mean you're happy. That year, we were successful, it was joyful, and we were happy. Knowing the pressures that coaches are under and what they have to deal with, with the media, with ownership, as you talk about general managers and the players themselves, you know, you use the word fun, and I don't hear that very often when I talk to NBA coaches. Is that gone out of the game for a coach? I think so. I think, you know, winning now is... You know, the, the the I think the money in the game makes the coach feel more responsible. And you know, we we you know we used to win a game and go out afterwards in the same town with the coaches that you just played, talk trash, tell stories, and enjoy life. Now with Chargers, you're on the next town, next city, and as soon as you get on the airplane, what you're doing is you're putting the video on and. You're running the game that you just played and, and maybe one more before you get to the next city. So the joy doesn't come out as much as it used to, and, and, and that's not good. Somehow, some way, appreciating success, everybody likes it, and if you feel it, I think you'd be better in the future. We only have a minute left, George, but uh, when you think back on your long career, more than four decades, and think about the moments you've, uh, you've had and everything, what is that one moment that is kind of emblazoned in George Carl's mind? Well, you know, I think the the one gift is uh, probably, you know, the Utah series winning that, knowing you're going to go to the NBA Finals and play Michael Jordan. That 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 Sunday was a pretty special Sunday in, in everybody's life, I think. I thought that was on that team. And I think the second thing is watching my son play basketball and being, making him being a pro and watching him play play the game very well that I love. And when he was at Boise State every once in a while, you know, he'd be the best player on the court. And that was a very, that's a very proud moment. George, I want to thank you. We've been friends for a long time. I've respected you for as long as I've known you. And, of course, you've had a great career, almost 2,000 victories as well. 
And uh, thank you again for sharing your career and your life with us. Uh, and I look forward to our hooking up again. Take care, my friend. Ron, you're the best. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. George Carl with us. And again, check out this book. It's a great read. It'll give you great insight into the NBA. Furious George, my 40 years surviving NBA divas, clueless GMs, and poor shot selection. I've never seen a a title like that before, but he was a very intense coach, but he also a very successful coach as well. We continue across the country and around the world on Sports Byline. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.